0: Welcome to the Audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who will be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. Tonight's Speakeasy Chat is being brought to you by Squeaky Cheese Productions on the cutting wedge. You can find them on the web at squeakycheeseproductions.com. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. My guest tonight is the senior director at one of the largest audiobook production companies in the country, if not the world, Macmillan Audio. Guy Oldfield, thanks for joining me in the speakeasy tonight. Hello, Rich. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm relaxing after uh, what's been a pretty a long week at work.
0: Yeah. Well, that's good. It's always good. Always good to relax. And a speakeasy is a good place to do it. So, uh, this being good. a speakeasy, what are you drinking tonight, guy?
1: Uh, forgive me. I I've gone for the most unsophisticated drink, although I think it's sophisticated. I'm actually sipping a PBR right now.
0: Just keeping it <laughs> plain and simple. PBR is, um, you know, it, it took me years to know what that referred to once yeah. it became popular again, because when I was a kid, that was one of the beers that when we would go to family functions, uh, that was a popular one back in the yeah. old days, uh, since, you know, I'm up there in, in years, um, that my grandfather and my uncles and, uh, my dad a little bit would be, would be drinking. And then I don't remember when it was that it all of a sudden became popular again, the eighties or nineties, or I don't know. And then all of a sudden I started hearing PBR, PBR peanut butter. And what I, I just, yeah. I, I couldn't understand what that was all about.
1: <laughs> it's, it's interesting you say it, because for me being a, a Brit now that lives in America, it was also completely lost in translation for me I had no I mean I knew it I acknowledged that it probably was a bit of a hipster beer but I didn't come to it from this kind of this revival of drinking PBR yeah as I say to friends of mine who occasionally sort of give me the side eye like you drink PBR I'm like <laughs> yeah it does what it says on the tin okay so it's plain and simple it's Friday and I want to crush a beer yeah. and that's what's happening right now I would I mean maybe if, depending on how long this conversation how deep we go I might like, I've got plenty of single malts on the shelf, so I might grab a single malt. But for now, where I'm at after this very very busy week at work, just a just a cool PBR is working to- for me right now.
0: Totally understandable. So um, so if if we do end up talking about uh, single malt, that would be fine. Real Ooh. brief, real briefly, uh, what's your what's your preference in a single malt?
1: Oh, probably uh, a Darwinies, I would think. Um, maybe anything which is is more brandy cast is is more my to my my taste
0: yeah um do you like the uh the sherry cask finish
1: yeah no, abs, abs, absolutely i think anything I'll, I'll go with something which is smoky and peaty it's scotch at the end of the day mm-hmm. you know, I want, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll drink it um but I, funnily enough, I've actually, I spent many a happy holiday in Scotland, fishing holidays with my father nice. and have been through the Darwinies, um distillery a couple of times. And I love it. I love what they make and yeah it's, it's 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 i'm very i'm very fond I'm very fond of that for all sorts of reasons um I, I recently had a significant birthday in my life and i um i seem to have been rewarded for that birthday by receiving lots of brown liquor <laughs>
0: that's fantastic what,
1: whether my friends were trying to make a comment about me i have no idea but there's there's quite a collection of single mops which i'm chipping away through it's
0: quite quite so. all right i i get those comments as well and uh, i'm i'm happy to get them i like delmoney i've got a uh i think i've got a 15 year right now oh, nice. uh, i think it's a 15 might be a 12 i i don't remember what i've got in the uh, in the cabinet right now yeah i tend to go for um i i like an isla scotch about once every three to six months i'm just ah. so in the mood for the really heavy smoke and the peat and then for months after that, I'm like, nope, no interest. And then all of yeah. a sudden, I will get in the mood for it again. Typically, yeah. I, I kind of like a, a Highland or a Speyside. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's nice to speak with someone who knows their scotch. Um, uh... I, that's about the extent of what I know. That's <laughs> say for me it's too. <laughs> my, my my wife uh, mentioned at one point, well, you know, talking to this person, and you know, they don't know whiskey like you do, and I'm like. I don't really know it all that well. I kind of pretend to, and and I I do enjoy learning about it. I, I can't wait to go to Scotland someday, and yeah. uh, and learn more and actually go to the distilleries. Um, but uh, but I, I do love learning about it. I am no expert though. I, I keep trying to get a uh, a book to uh to narrate that is about Scotch and the the couple of uh of. Publishers and authors that I've approached, they just don't have the the time or the money or the interest in getting an audiobook made. But there are quite a few good books out there about uh, all kinds of whiskies and uh, and especially scotch. So one of these days, I'm going to be able to narrate a book on uh, on scotch or or all whiskies.
1: It seems to be the perfect it's the perfect subject matter
0: to listen to. Mm-hmm. While also well, drinking at e- the same time. Exactly. <laughs> Why doesn't this exist? Exactly. This must exist. Yeah, so. it, would, it would be perfect. So. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm joining you not in a beer, but in a similarly uh, bubbly drink. I'm actually having a uh, hard cider, Henry Hotspurs hard ah. pressed for cider. I'm a I'm a fan of uh, I'm more a little bit more of a fan of pear cider, but uh, but yeah. I do like a good apple cider, and this just seemed like a good time. So ended up being a good match with a with a bubbly beer as well.
1: Oh, good for you. Uh, I. Can come from the part of the UK where cider comes from I'm from the southwest originally oh. in the in the UK so I was raised with cider it's very yeah. much i mean, I, I think in the same way that i don't know maybe pbr maybe bud light is kind of the drink that you first drink in the US mm-hmm. it's the kind of the thing that you can get your hands on yeah cider in the southwest of england where i'm from um cider it's just everywhere it's absolutely everywhere huh. and we got some real, we got some real good ones. I'm not, I, I'm I'm happy to see it over in the US. I mean, it's obviously pretty commonplace now. Um, Much more
0: so, I would say, than it was ten or twenty yeah. years ago.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, again, in in, in in so many things, I love about American culture. I love the habit of trying to find sort of connoisseur ciders, and so mm-hmm. I found some. Re- I found a lot better cider in the in the US than I found in the UK, oh. if, where I'm from. Cider, I mean. There are there are some good ones, but it has a certain kind of describe it. Most cider's where I'm from have, are a kind of industrial strength.
0: Basically, it's <laughs> so, um, a, a great the, great uh, description of of a drink. <laughs>
1: the um the one local local to where my father lives when he's in the UK, the local brew is known as chainsaw that's what it's called <laughs>
0: chainsaw and that's great. i think you
1: i think i think you get how strong it might sure, be because it it'll, yeah. <laughs> it'll cut you down so
0: that's great well thanks for coming into the uh, the speakeasy guy i hope the uh, the pbr goes down well and if you follow it it up if you if you go backwards <laughs> and follow it up with a uh, a scotch chaser let me know but oh, um, yes. but thanks for coming in cheers welcome cheers So you said, uh, Southwest of the UK, I am not terribly familiar with the UK. I've only been over the pond once. And that was in, uh, when I was working for a company that had a, uh, either a subsidiary or a sister company, I don't remember now in Crawley and, um, and it, it was not a, a terribly interesting place to visit, but they did let me get one day of sightseeing in and I, I went up to the tower. Um, so I'm not really familiar with uh, with the Southwest. Uh, where were you from specifically? So specifically, I'm from the
1: Bath area. Oh, OK. So I definitely so heard of Bath. Bath, so Bath, Jane Austen,
0: basically
1: mm-hmm. Jane Austen. So I was raised between uh, in Bath and also North London. So oh. Bath was where I went to. Uh, school, and then uh, college in London. So, right. but yeah, always always lived in the south. Always lived in the south of England. Now, where did you go to college? Uh, my first college experience, I went to Cardiff University. So Cardiff, which is the capital of Wales, which is South Wales. Mm-hmm. I studied politics, and off the back of that, I went to college in London. I went to a college called the School of Oriental and African Studies. Oh wow! And I studied. Uh, Middle Eastern politics and Islamic sociology. Uh, why I did that, I sometimes ask myself. I <laughs> why, why did that? I was just curious. I was just. I was just curious. Um, this was in the turn of the. I'm going to say this. This was in the turn of the century. Yeah. Sounds very dramatic. Um, but at the time, I was just fascinated by that region. And then, as I've told a fair number of people, this is. This is no joke, the day I handed in my dissertation, which was on exploring, this is for my master's degree, exploring the various theories behind uh, Islamic-inspired revolutions in the Middle East, Mm -hmm. um, the Twin Towers were struck.
0: Damn.
1: So I remember sitting, I was at my friend's house, living at a friend's house at the time in South London, and I sat there, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I just sat there like everybody. I think the world, obviously mm-hmm. the world was stunned. Yeah. And I,
0: I, I think that of everybody who lived through that, there are very few people who are not going to remember when they heard about it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. It's funny. I mean, we will never forget. No. It's like the time at the time. My mother said, my mother remembers the day that Kennedy was killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you don't forget that day. And I think at the time, it sounds, it sounds odd. I knew at the time, I was, uh, watching that event, you're thinking so many things. But I also knew at the time, what I've just spent the last year studying is suddenly going to become hyper-relevant. Yeah, And it was. And from that trajectory, from my studies of that region, um, that took me very rapidly into working in Middle East-related broadcasting. So I, oh. I, I joined the BBC within... 18 months. I was working for um, I was working for a think tank I, at the time. I, was, I had pondered whether to go to take a, you know take up a PhD. I wasn't really sure about it, um, but suddenly there was this huge demand in broadcast media for anybody and everybody sure. who had experience of the Middle East in some way. So I was recruited into the BBC. I joined the international news division, uh, specifically the Middle East division, and within another 18 months. Um, my country and the country I now live in, your country, were at war in Iraq mm, and yeah. suddenly uh, I spent seven years uh, in BBC International News specifically focused on the Middle East. And Now, now when, were,
0: when you were doing um, politics in college and when you were mm-hmm. studying what at the time was probably not studied nearly as much as it is now. Um, Were you thinking at the time that you would like to go into broadcasting? Were you thinking about going into teaching, um, history, some, something else or, um, or were you, um, just sort of thrown into being in, uh, the media because that was your area of expertise?
1: It's a bit of both really. I mean, I've always been a consumer of news media. I enjoy Mm it. I'm an avid radio listener. Um, and we will talk about this later. But I, I was I was raised in the household of listening to things. I mean, we I lived in, I I grew up in a home where we didn't have a television until I think I was almost ten. Mm. Uh, my parents were such avid listeners and readers. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother was a librarian and became an audiobook librarian. So from a very young age, I was listening to audiobooks and not just fiction. Listening to nonfiction at a young age, mm-hmm. and so when I I was had a curiosity in world affairs. And so I thought potentially it might happen. Um, it was either that or maybe a, it's a horrible way to say, it. I mean, cause we think so for all good and bad reasons, we think negatively about politics so much. I mm. thought maybe a career in politics in mm-hmm. consultancy In uh, part of my first degree was, was, was very focused on European politics and European institutions. Um, obviously Brexit has happened now and <laughs> Britain has decided to go its way. Yeah. Um, just,
0: just thinking about it. I mean, cause I was, um, in, uh, well, I, I took one course in, in college way back in the Dark Ages that, that was uh, sort of peripherally about poli-sci. I met, met the poli prof and, and mm-hmm. talked about it a bit. And at the time, I was very interested in Russia. I actually took two years of Russian in college, mm-hmm. and I was uh, fascinated by the history of that country. And I was really kind of interested in politics. Looking at things now, God, the world is so different from, from a political standpoint in so many ways.
1: Oh, no, ab- absolutely. I think... I think one of the reasons why I specialized in the Middle East, I was was very fortunate at the school I went to. I went to an international school, a high school, and I was at a very young age exposed to uh, young people from all around the world. And it's funny you talk about Russia, because at the high school I went to, there were many young Russians Hmm. because they were the fallout from the collapsing Soviet Union and the independent states that emerged. So I would have... I had friends from the Ukraine and Georgia and Belarus, and it was it was odd. I was strangely exposed to all this sort international community. And I think what it got got me interested in is that at a young age, and this is something very much encouraged by my parents, is that you're living in a changing world, mm-hmm. and this kind of depolarization of the Cold War and what was to happen. And then I went on to study a region which was in a state in the Middle East, which is in the, it was, it was in a state of imminent collapse. And which is why in the books that I work on, I always tend to gravitate towards books about geopolitics. I just mm-hmm. I just enjoy them and people's in interpretations of them. And um, they are incredibly popular at the moment, particularly if you mix in the COVID sure, um, yeah. sort of dynamic as well. So yeah, it, was, it was a combination of curiosity dare I say, a kind of combination of instinct. I could just sort of see the world as this sort of, yeah, it's changing. Mm-hmm. And as I was I was saying to somebody earlier today, actually, I've always professionally, always tried to move towards things which are in a state of change. Um, I found that's been the most interesting thing to do. It's been the most rewarding, the most prosperous. And I've got no doubt I got lucky in the sense, well, <laughs> fortune by misfortune. Right, considering right. Considering what I had studied,
0: yeah,
1: Um, but I went for it. And whilst those years of working in news and Middle Eastern news, they were tough. I mean, at a young age, I saw some very, very grim things, no doubt. Um, And the toughest day, I had to report on. I got into on an early shift. I got got into an early morning news briefing. And I discovered that one of my school friends had been killed in Iraq. He was a serving officer for the British oh, Army in Iraq. Wow. And so that was that was a surreal moment for mm. me. And it brought it all all home. And that's really, from that point, that was in was about 2005, that's when I sort of began to think, right, maybe a trajectory to do something else. And another passion in my life is sports. Um, I'm an unashamed sports fan. I've mm-hmm. always enjoyed playing sports and watching sports. And so from news, I transitioned into sports news broadcasting, which also allowed me to travel a great deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also, I did that for, what was that, three years at the BBC?
0: Um, well, that's great that you had uh, enough cachet at the BBC to be able to do that without being held back. Well, no, we need you over here. Um You know, it's 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 great that uh, that everything had gone well at that point so that you could transition into something that you found interesting.
1: Absolutely. And again, very lucky again, because of the intensity of the work in my early career. The, The BBC went through a profound transition in the early noughties and how it trained producers and that initially if you went back sort of 20, 25 years at the BBC, you would still have been on a very traditional training path. Mm-hmm. You would have been trained into broadcast journalism, broadcast engineering, broadcast management, all the back office work. And in the early noughties, um, the BBC really got to grips with the challenge of digital very early and realized that it needed multi-skilled staff and it needed them very rapidly. Yeah. So from, from my early 20s, I was trained in basically everything required to do anything and everything in broadcast media from script writing to camera work to radio transmission to basic engineering work to uh, editing work to it just you're just given the full remit and that was unusual but the BBC was going that way and it, and it invested very heavily in multi-skilling its staff because it needed people to do so much cuz suddenly it had so much to do. Baptism
0: and, by fire.
1: No, it was. It was. I, I, oh, yeah, absolutely. I've been thrown in the deep end so many times. Um, <laughs> but also, but it teaches you resilience. Sure. It teaches you adaptability. And it's something which I look for in people that I'm hiring. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something which I work with people to try and get them to develop and test them for the people that I hire. I'm always... To a degree, testing them to see if they can do it. I think fundamentally, the best producers are the producers that have the instinct to work it out for themselves. Um, and so, yeah, so those early those early years were kind of crazy. There's a lot of travel, there's a lot of figuring it, <laughs> figuring things out on the fly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I love it, and I continue I continue to love it.
0: That's great. Yeah. I like that. That um, you know, if you have the instinct to um, kind of figure things out on your own. I don't think it's ever a bad idea to ask for help when you really need it. But what I, what I, it seems to me that what I see frequently is people who are, who are asking for answers to questions that if you really just give yourself, you know, don't just think about it for three minutes and, Mm. and, um, realize that you don't know the answer. Think about it for 30 minutes. Think about it for three days. And. And You know consider all the different angles and my guess is that a lot of these questions that people have that they just kind of immediately throw out there If they really just give themselves a chance, they'd probably come up with the right answer 90% of the time
1: <laughs> No, I agree. I, I agree entirely um, yeah, the ability to make decisions and the methodology to make sense. I mean we we're, we're talking in the abstract already. It's probably the PVR that's talking about. Right <laughs> um <laughs> no, but it's something I look for in people. It's like can you think abstractly about something? Can you problem solve? Can you um yeah, can you figure it out? And it's interesting you mentioned it before. Can you also raise your hand if you don't know? Mm-hmm. I think that's a, that's often a true test of someone. Like can you actually say I don't know and yeah. admit that it's that you don't and there's nothing wrong with it. I, I I don't judge people for saying, I don't know. I'm I've said this many times to the people I've worked with over the years and the team I work with now I, I, um, I know what I don't know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and we'll figure it out.
0: Yeah, it's, 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 it's a balance because you, you want to ask for help, but I just think that sometimes people ask for it too quickly. And it seems to me that, um, I don't know, in this country especially, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, you know, don't ask for help. And it really, it, it does a disservice. To um, to yourself to not be able to ask for help, I think, especially in the really difficult times. You know, like uh, if you're grieving the loss of somebody, mm-hmm. or you're going through a, a major life change that you hadn't anticipated, um, it's it's really helpful to lean on those people that you trust. And uh, a lot of times, you're well, no, you gotta you know take care of yourself. And I just I just think that does a disservice. No,
1: no, I, I would I would agree. It's interesting. I've just done a book about. Um, popular fads in social psychology and the whole kind of buck up culture mm-hmm. is uh, it's bullshit
0: yeah <laughs> um that's uh, a that's a straight way to say that <laughs> yeah <it laughs> I, I agree
1: <laughs> it is it's based upon uh, it's based upon phony science and it's based upon kind of bullying culture
0: mm-hmm. and
1: it doesn't solve problems. Yeah. It's, it's also it's, hard
0: to get away from when you get it drilled into you from a really early age. I mean, at my age, you know, back in those days, it was, I think even more common than it is now to, well, no boys don't cry. And, you know, you mm. gotta take care of yourself and, and all that. And, uh, it's really hard to get away from that and to realize, no, I do need help and I need to reach out to, you know, these different people. So I, I think that's, uh, that's really important.
1: No, I agree. And, and, and professionally I've seen it. It's such a, it's so interesting to live in this country. I've lived here seven years now and to see it in professional environments is fascinating because in the UK, the UK is a very consensus, well, until recently, the UK is a very consensus-driven society, and that translates into working life. People are often looking, the way I say that is that in the UK, and I can say this for broadcast media, people are often looking for the right way to do things, not necessarily the most efficient way to do things mm-hmm. or just get or getting on with it. Now, that comes with a caveat. Sometimes it can take too long to get things done, yeah. which is one of the reasons <laughs> One of the reasons why I do like working in New York media culture, because there is a culture of let's get on with it, Mm -hmm. a preparedness to, it's a cliche to fail forward, um, but to try things, if it doesn't work, try it again. Um, The challenge though, and I found this, I've hired many times in the US, is I've often encountered young staff, young freelancers, producers cutting their teeth in the industry and nobody's trained them. Nobody's given them the confidence to either ask for training or to feel they can try things, make mistakes and kind of protect them. And that's it's something that I, I focus on a lot professionally here is trying to give people an opportunity to prove themselves yeah. and trying to create an environment in which they can try things i can support them but they can figure it out for themselves and also if required formal training i i would say it can be challenging I, formal training does not make you an expert in anything <laughs> it just means you've sat, you've had the patience to sit in a room for x number of hours and someone talk to you yeah that's the um, way that
0: i look at university as well is that um you know you can you can sort of become an expert in whatever the the field is but what's more important is just learning how to learn so that yes. so that you know how to get that information and so uh, you know, train formal training, I think, is is a great thing. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna be an expert, but at least you, you know, know where the resources are.
1: Exactly. Agreed.
0: Yeah. Well, so you spent um seven years, I think you said, in in politics and three years in sports. How did you end up in audiobooks?
1: Well, the so the trajectory off the back of sports as I went into music entertainment, which meant all sorts of things. So this was this was the last sort of 18 months, two years at the BBC. I ended up basically um, directing live music,
0: oh, wow. so
1: yeah. So and producing various parts of various fairly well-known festivals. So I am sure most of the listeners to this podcast would know what Glastonbury Festival was, the largest music festival in the world. So uh, I was working on festival production. I was um, uh, developing, conceiving new forms of, of live music shows for the BBC, um, and then. I made the move to the U S so I found myself needing to do something else. And I, so let me
0: interrupt for a second there. What, what, what drove that move? Was it work related or was it, I just want to do something different?
1: Uh, I can say this in the romantic way. It was love. It was love. Ah, that's a good reason. That's the best reason. (laughs) No, Absolutely. The best reason. So, um, at the time my girlfriend at the time, um, was working. In number ten uh, in the UK, so the equivalent of the White House in oh, the UK. Oh, okay, uh-huh. yeah. Uh, uh, my girlfriend, now wife, uh, so was an advisor to um, the British Prime Minister, and took a break from that to work for the United Nations in New York, ah. and that was to be a short four month sabbatical, and I knew that she probably wouldn't come back, <laughs> and. Hey ho, uh, three and a half months in, um, what a surprise! Phone call, catch up. Uh, I think I'm going to stay. So okay. So over the course of a year, I managed to make myself redundant from the BBC. Um, yeah, I got a very, I got a very generous severance, severance package from the BBC, and nice. I waved goodbye, and I took that money and I set myself up in New York, um, and then. Pretty much when I moved to New York, my girlfriend, we got married, and um, yeah, set up and started started trying to find a path to what can what what can this profession you know what will be my professional life in in the US. And I ended up because I'd worked in music entertainment, I ended up working for MTV, and I produced. Uh, I could go back the years now. What was it? So I was one of the producers of the twenty fifteen VMAs. Oh. So, and that then led on, I was working at kind of an accommodation of news entertainment for, um, MTV and transferred from that, went back into live music, ended up being one of the producers at Coachella Music Festival.
0: That one I've definitely uh, heard of.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, that was great fun. That was great, great fun working with Coachella, um, ended up because of my sports experience ended up, uh, producing and directing for the NFL. Um, so it was all a, it was all sort of a real mixture of things. I was just trying things out. Yeah. Trying this is, things I, out.
0: Th- that's one of the things that I love about hosting this podcast is, is, um, hearing about how people got to where they are. And I think that it's true in, in any profession, um, any, anytime you have somebody who's older than 20 years old and sometimes even people who are that young, it's, it's always interesting to me to hear how they got to where they are because you see somebody right now, you meet them for the first time and they're you know, head of PRH, or they're, they're producing live music or they're a studio engineer or whatever it is. And you don't know what went into getting there. And it could be that they had a dream of that from the time they were four, or it could be that they've been doing it for two years. And before that, they were a professional circus clown. You know, it's just, you you never know how people get to where they are until you hear the story. And I I love hearing all the backstories.
1: I think, I I mean, absolutely. I mean, for for me, I don't know if it's an unusual path or not. I just fundamentally, I like making things. I really like producing things. I like building teams that make things. Mm -hmm. And as I said before, I like working on things um, in broadcast media where change is happening. Mm -hmm. And so I was working in predominantly digital video production, live streaming. This was as 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 all listeners will know, um, network television is a state of profound change. Mm-hmm. Um, everything is going on demand. And then kind out of nowhere, I ended up I ended up working at the New Yorker magazine. And I was a video producer there, and I was also working over at GQ at the same time. And that's a curious experience, just like making working for these grand old magazines. Mm-hmm. I thought, this is curious. It's the first time I'd ever worked with a print publication before. I thought, what's going on here? This is really curious. Here I am trying to create digital video content with you, and I could see these profound changes happening at these magazine companies. And a friend of mine who works in publishing, and believe it or not, this is the only other person at the time I knew who worked in book publishing, said, are you like aware that audiobooks are really blowing up right now? Like They're, <laughs> they're like a thing. And like, they're going to become a thing. And we as publishers are really leaning on them right now that we've got, you know, we're investing a lot in these. And so I started investigating and the job, which I have now, it just, it it popped up. It was, it was like another coincidence. It was just, it just came up. And I had a phone call with our president and publisher, Mary Beth Roche. And within a couple of weeks I was working for a, Book publishing company
0: fell into and that place,
1: and just fell in, and that was it. And yeah, I had to <laughs> I just had to get
0: on with it. So, how long <laughs> so have you been at Macmillan now? Uh, it's coming up three years. Three years. All right. And it, have you been the senior director there the whole time, or did you have a couple of different roles? Or so I was. In, I was initially the director of production. I was very
1: recently promoted to senior director. Okay. So yeah. So re- recent promotion, and yeah, I've spent. I spent the last three years dived in and had to get on with it. I mean, we are like all the big publishing houses. We are busy.
0: We yeah. are very, very busy. <laughs> no um, doubt. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so you went from um, production director to senior director. Um, I'm interested in the, in the title and what that means exactly, because when I hear the term director in relation to audiobooks, it it typically refers to somebody who is on the other side other side of the glass in the recording studio, and they're, you know, listening as you're going, and they're directing you, no, let's stop there, and let's do this instead. And and when I hear production director, I know that production involves a whole lot of different steps. So tell me, as the senior director, what do you focus on? <sighs> Where does it start? I mean, <laughs> I think you can...
1: Uh, how director what that means in my job title is it means organizer
0: basically uh, <laughs> it, it just means
1: it. i'm an organizer uh-huh. um so i am a producer i produce audiobooks, uh i run a production team i run mcmillan audio's production team i'm involved in the some of the business strategy around what we're working on and how we're spending our money and what we're spending our money on. Uh, I'm involved in developing. I do a lot of workflow development at McMillan Audio, trying to find as many efficiencies as we can. Mm-hmm. It's, that, it's that standard. We've got to get more bang for our buck. It's it, That's what it's about. That's what it's about. Yeah. And um, also very deeply involved in some of the cultural change which is happening happening at Macmillan which is happening to all the big publishing houses which is publishing companies are diversifying they are becoming Mm -hmm. more representative they are publishing a much wider variety of books and that has changed our requirements in production um, particularly from a casting perspective and how we serve our authors how we serve our audiences, um, how we get you know books right, and it's a real mix. I mean, there's there's so many different. I mean, a typical working day. There, there is no typical working day. For me. I mean, some <laughs> days, some days I am directing, um, and which is immensely time consuming. Yeah. Um, other days, I'm just looking at numbers, looking at numbers, seeing what we're spending our money on, seeing what we could other things we could spend our money on seeing what we shouldn't spend our money on it's i mean i've made the job i kind of i've made the job my own really because there's all sorts of things i want to bring to macmillan but this is fundamentally i was explaining this to our associate publisher very recently who's effectively our, our deputy of our department i was saying one of the reasons why i'm so interested in production workflow and efficiency is trying to be as creative as we can for our authors because fundamentally audiobook production it is a scale business. it really is particularly for the big for the big publishing houses mm-hmm. They are pumping out hundreds if not thousands of audiobooks a year and trying to give all of those books the care and attention they need mm-hmm. is challenging yeah and so I'm a big believer in a combination of good people and good systems that we will realize the potential for all of our books. And it's be, it's about being organized about it. It's It might sound a little dry and a little um, abstract, but that's what I'm searching for all the time, is trying to...
0: I think that sounds great. Um, I think that... You know, knowing that there are people out there where you know, there's this book and there's this book. This is a huge bestseller. This is just a book that a few people buy. Knowing that there are people who are saying, yes, it's worthwhile to make this audiobook, and we want to make this audiobook the best it can possibly be for the author. I, I, I think that's a great goal. Uh, I can also see how. Um, no day would be like any other day just because there are a lot of things that you packed into that direct that uh, definition of director Like I said as a, as a narrator when I hear the term director I, I understand that in business, you know You have a director and they are in charge of things but being in this business I hear that word and typically I think of somebody who's just on the other side of the glass directing an audiobook or, or directing audiobooks continuously And, uh, and clearly the senior director is more of a business director kind of (laughs) position there where you're pretty much running everything. Yeah,
1: no, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, uh, our business is changing. Our Mm -hmm. business is developing quickly. Uh, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I want us to, and I need us to, to move fast. We need to make quick decisions about what we're going to make and how we're going to make it. And I work day-to-day with the team that I manage to try and enable them to you know, g- get on with it, just mm-hmm. to, just to get on with it, basically. Because it is, and I know there'll be many narrators listening to this, um, that we're a factory. We mm-hmm. are. We, we are a production factory. I, mean, you know, I came from a scale video background, a scale broadcast television background, where everything has to be built out. And how can we make this mm-hmm bigger Mm -hmm. you know there's so much more demand i mean when i was when i was working in the uk it was all about the bbc has this it's it's such an unusual organization it's all about serving every every member of british society it has this very core um consensus driven the bbc is for all it's about being as inclusive and as complete as possible the difference in the us it's about how many markets can we serve how many people can we put product in front of We know there's markets here, so we're going to target this market, and it's it's obviously much more commerce driven. Mm -hmm. And I've got to find ways of doing that. So, whilst that's a lot of business, there's a business side to it. I then temper that by working on the creative side, which is to a to a degree directing, but also in casting work and diving into books that I love. I work on so many amazing books. Macmillan, we're very blessed. We have such an incredible variety mm-hmm. of authors. So I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky that I can strike that balance between those two sides of the business.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, I always figure if you can, you know, business is business and you have a bottom line and and you have to uh, make your mortgage payment or pay your employees or whatever it is, but at the same time, if you're in a business where you can be creative, so much the better. Um, no,
1: I, I agree. The, and I, something I really wanted to say, and because someone else asked me recently, why do you work in audiobooks? I think about something um, and how when I first started working in video work, which is that when it wasn't widely consumed, now, you know, video is ubiquitous now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's difficult not to consume video. It's the driving force between so, the driving force behind so much online advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember at the time when I was de- developing early video products in the UK, and that what would, be the, what, what would be people's first experience of this? How would they first consume it? How would they first think about it? What would, would they come back to it? And something I'm always looking for in audiobook production is this, is this thought I have in the back of my head is that this book this audiobook might be the first one that someone listens to. Mm. So it has to achieve a particular standard and it has to be something that there's the possibility that listeners will come back and they'll want another one.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think about this a lot. So I was very well, Macmillan Audio were absolutely ec- ecstatic. Last week we won um, an Audi for the Alicia Keys book, More Myself, oh, fantastic. Uh, which I produced and directed for Macmillan. Absolutely fantastic team effort from Macmillan Audio. Um, so happy it, it won for the uh, author narrator category. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons we poured so much effort into this particular audio book is that I knew from the outset that people who listen to Alicia's book might never have listened to another audiobook because this is the kind of that crossover market between... Biography, music celebrity. And I wanted to make this absolutely standout product that people would say, that's the one.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That kind of, I remember, I remember that one. I'll go and get another one. My personal experience of the, the audiobook experience for me as a child was listening to Lord of the Rings on cassette tape. Oh, remember, no kidding. I remember plugging in that first cassette on, and I used to keep my cassette cassette deck under my pillow Mm -hmm. and i'm pressing (laughs) pressing play and i heard those kind of i don't know if arthurian might be it was the sort of the style of the music for this particular adaptation of lord of the rings Mm -hmm. wonderful uh full cast production full sound design and it was absolute magic i thought I absolutely love audiobooks. I
0: That's great. I didn't realize that they that there were any full cast productions back then.
1: Yeah, I can't forget who played Bilbo. I'm going to have to I can look it up. I, somewhere in all of my stuff still stored in the UK is a 19 cassette
0: <laughs> version of
1: Lord of the Rings in a black box with a Tolkien...
0: How artwork funny. on it
1: black and gold um that sounds but...
0: fantastic i um i i remember the days of audiobooks on cassette and the packages that you would get them in and the the plastic things where you'd open it up and they'd be stuck in the yep. plastic there yeah I, I i remember those days um i didn't listen to a lot of audiobooks back then back then but i did listen to some and uh, and so I, I remember and, – and now it's interesting how much – talking about change earlier how, – how much this industry has changed both in terms of the format and the availability as well as the stylistic choices and how, you know, a lot of nonfiction back then I think was – V- really quite dry and oh, yeah. really just sort of reading the words and um, maybe even the fiction I think to a certain extent even the fiction was really toned down in terms of reading versus acting um, Uh, so it's, it's interesting to see all the changes that have been made, but what a great experience listening to a a classic book like that. I'm a, I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan, um, listening to something like that to get you interested in both that subject and the possibility of listening to stuff and, uh, and everything related to it. So that's, that's great.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, I I will never, I said, I'll never forget that listening experience, the quality of that production, absolute commitment to the craft. Mm -hmm. Um a book that I had, I think I listened to Lord of the Rings before I read Lord of the Rings. Mm. And it's a book which I've read or the three books um, that I have read, I think at least twice. Mm -hmm. Um, And just talk about falling in love with the format. I mean, I've, I've always loved listening to spoken word Um, as Brits. We are very spoiled in the UK with an abundance of very, very high quality spoken word broadcasting. So Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, again, again, it's just something I've, I've always preferred to listen than to watch whilst I'm a, I'm a big TV fan. Um, I enjoy listening to actors finding that moment in themselves to deliver a text. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not particularly picky around genres. I can, I'll listen, I produce a lot of very commercial mainstreams sort or of big commercial hits for Macmillan audio I like I like producing those books I like working on products which uh, are very popular with a very broad audience I like lo- I'm, I'm fascinated why people come back to the stories that they love the same characters they you know uh, mm-hmm. I produced the JD Rob um, oh. in death series um, and I think we're up to book 53.
0: Wow, uh, <laughs> I'm I'm not familiar with the series. I'm I'm certainly familiar with the name.
1: Yeah, um, and the audience comes back again and again, mm. and they love to know what will happen. What will happen to those characters? I find that I find that fascinating. Again, I'm as as interested in as obviously as involved in the day to day production work of of making things. I'm also I'm also curious about the. What would you say the philosophy or the psychology about why people listen and certainly patterns of listening or patterns of consumption it's just something i'm just curious about maybe mm-hmm. it's just curious about human behavior about why people want to listen to things which they, they're they familiar with sure. i think the thing i think the thing about audiobooks is they provide there's no doubt for a core audience they provide a great not only entertainment but they provide a great deal of comfort um there's that classic as directors will say to actors and i've discussed on many a panel there's an intimacy there's a mm-hmm. relationship between a narrator and a listener and that's I'm very I've always been very curious about that
0: yeah You're, that, you that are, moment of connection you are right in their ear.
1: Yeah, absolutely yeah. absolutely.
0: Well, um, well, it sounds like you're, you're a perfect fit for this job. So, um, tell me some, uh, give, give me one of, I mean, the Alicia Keys thing is, is clearly a, uh, standout positive experience in, uh, in the time that you've been at Macmillan. Um, give me without any names, of course, give me, give me a negative experience. What, what have, what has made uh, the production of an audiobook at one stage or another really difficult at some point?
1: Oh, <sighs> a negative experience. Probably, I'm going to have to think about this, Rich. Sorry, give me, give me a second. No, that's fine. What I'm,
0: what I'm really thinking about is not so much, oh, this was terrible, but, but more um, what, what has made it difficult. And, and the idea behind this is mostly narrators are listening to this podcast. And I like to try to, to give people something to think about so that if they go into a situation, they kind of know what to avoid to prevent it from becoming a negative situation. <laughs>
1: Yeah. and So if I can be, I'm thinking of an answer, which I can also be of service as well. So a negative experience. I might have to say this a couple of times to get it right. Um, I think some of the most challenging experiences I've had is working with narrators that have really struggled to find the tone of a book mm. and the kind of dawning realization that the narrator doesn't understand the text. And you're like, ah, mm. I get it now. Yeah, I get it. And this is something I ask of narrators, which is that if you don't understand what you're reading, you must ask. You must ask for insights to the book.
0: Do, <laughs> um, do, do that ask for help thing. <laughs>
1: yeah, do that. And it seems obvious. And I, and I get it. I get. I get why people find it hard to ask. They don't want to be. They don't want to be an impediment to the producer. They fear that they might not be booked again. They worry that they might be, quote, difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no harm in asking. I've had enough conversations with enough editors, editorial assistants, acquiring editors, copy editors, production editors, all the people that work on the editorial side of books, to know that sometimes on the editorial side of the book, they didn't know what the writer was talking about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's tough. And and they've struggled. Mm -hmm. You know. you mustn't forget that many books are bought by publishing houses sight unseen,
0: mm-hmm. and that's
1: only that manuscripts are bought in, a deal is done, and manuscripts bought in, then it's to an editor to knock it into shape, right, let's make a book out of this. What are we doing here? This is why editors wield so much power, because it has to make sense. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to sell this. The investment, the the upfront investment in book acquisition is huge, the risk that's taken on these manuscripts. Um, is enormous. And so that's why there has to be so much filtering and editing. And obviously once you get into a you know a great editorial relationship between author and editor, these things just flow. Mm-hmm. But when that translates through, and I think sometimes there can be, because of distance, there can be a things can get lost in translation from the point at which it lands with a narrator. And I never want I never want narrators to feel cut off
0: mm-hmm. from
1: understanding the book. But I've definitely had incidences where it's dawned on me, like I actually realise this narrator has no idea what this book is about, mm. and they've got, and that's for both fiction and non-fiction, mm-hmm. and they've either, from a non-fiction perspective, they just sound disingenuous and or bored,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's worrying. <laughs> yeah, and they, you can tell it, it, something sounds a little like a cold read, or they haven't done their prep, um, or on the fiction side, they're just lost. They're just lost in the text mm. and lost in a bad way.
0: Yeah. Not,
1: lo- not lost in that uh, moment. It's, it's right. interesting. Um, I produced Oprah Winfrey's uh, books and something that Oprah's spoken to me about when, when I've been recording with her is that she says to me, I just need to achieve flow. I just mm. need to flow here. Just trust me, if I make mistakes, I will make mistakes. I will go back and I will correct, but just let me get up into the flow. Like, let me get there and it'll be fine. And it takes her uh, all of five seconds. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so it's just—I think it's a sort of a, a forewarning of "I'm okay, thank you." Um, but it raises a good point, which is, I hear hundreds of incredibly skilled and talented narrators, and they're into it, and they're in the moment, and it's there. But when when it's not there, it can be very jarring. Mm-hmm. And I think about it from a from a producer creative perspective, but also producer, director, business perspective of, oh no, how is the author going to react to this? Sure, yeah. And that's when it gets tricky. Mm-hmm. And I've worked, I've, yeah, I've worked on projects which have gone sideways. I've worked with my team where things have not worked, where we have had to change things. And often because maybe only one small thing went wrong, but over the course of a 10, 12-hour audiobook. The, I, I often say this to my production team: Beware of the multiplication effect. Yeah. Over that distance, suddenly it's a massive problem,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's why narrators have got to raise their hand. They've got to say, "I need help," and that's tricky. You know, producers producers are busy. You know, they've got you know, we're producing many hundreds of books. Producers have a great deal of responsibility. Um, but yeah, that's been that's been some of the most The most challenging yeah i could see i could
0: see how that would be the case um yeah it it sort of reminds me a little bit about you know raise your hand if if you need help understanding this uh, phrase the the entire book whatever it is um Mm. i think that one of the things that i learned um early on not quite early enough but early on was also to raise your hand and say you know i don't think i'm right for this book and nobody who is doing this work ever wants to say that because you want to be able to do anything that you're given and you're strong and, and everything is good. But, um, at some point, hopefully early on in the process, you need to recognize what you're good at, what you're not good at and be willing to say at the risk of losing a job, I'm just not the right person for this process. I, I couldn't agree more, and that's
1: a very challenging moment for those trying to break into the industry. It is. <laughs> it's still, I think it's still challenging for those who are established in the industry. But yep. I've had that. I've had that feedback from some narrators, and I appreciate it. It, it is. A, it is appreciated. You're a better narrator for it. I think you're. A, you're also a better producer for it through having that experience mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, it can be a reminder of maybe I picked that one wrong. Maybe I need to pay maybe I need to pay closer attention to this, like maybe something isn't right here and maybe I was expecting too much from somebody. Um, it's why at Macmillan we, we try to, we have, a, we have a relatively new narrator database and uh, we try and record as, you know, as accurate information as possible about what narrators obviously c- can do and what they, what they can't do. And I ask for any narrators listening to this who are registering with our database, it's be honest with yourself. Mm-hmm. Be honest with yourself. It's very easy to tick every single accent and every single genre. Mm-hmm. It's probably not going to help you from a casting perspective. Yeah. I much prefer to know the five things you feel really confident, genres you, can, you feel really confident about, and five to ten accents you're like, I'm absolutely rock solid in those, than rather have an audition which frankly wastes your time and wastes the producer's time mm-hmm. and has an author feeling unsure um if they're listening to auditions um yeah so just be yeah be honest with yourself yeah. and it's, it's obvious as that sounds <laughs> you have to do it
0: yeah no i i uh, I think that's great advice in in life and in audiobooks, <laughs> yeah absolutely so uh well well, that's great so guy, what do you do when you're not uh, when you're not involved in audiobook production, when you're not being a director and handling all those different pieces of the puzzle?
1: um most of my life is spent chasing after my young son <laughs> who, <laughs> who runs ring, who runs rings around me how,
0: how my old am I?
1: He's four. Four
0: years Uh, old. Yeah. They can run rings around anybody uh, at that age.
1: (laughs) Just at this moment of, um, (laughs) you know, they've got enough communication that they can answer back and they've got enough communication that they can still claim ignorance. (laughs) (laughs) um, But no, in in terms of, no, I I mean, he's, my son is absolutely, he's the center of my world. Um, I think in terms of other things, I tend to just, the nature of lockdown and, where I live in New York. I live in, um, I live in the Upper West Side, and I, I have a very wonderful community garden, which I volunteer at, and it oh, sounds nice. all very grown up and very boring. But-
0: um, No, I think that's great.
1: This, this particular garden is a collaboration with a local school, and this school has not been able to open uh, during pandemic. So the garden was, uh, pretty much for the last 12 months, has run wild. And mm. so myself and other group of volunteers um, have spent our our weekends tending it and looking after it. It's and and producing crops from it. And it sounds so funny. So it sounds very. It sounds all very kind of bougie uh, Manhattanish. But it really <laughs> is a bit of like. I mean, my parents. My parents would say that they are uh, would describe themselves as uh, aged hippies. Yeah. Um, no, I was. I mean, I was fortunate to be raised in a house with. Uh, uh, my mother is very keen gardener, so no, it's just it's a nice thing to do. It's a nice place to decompress, just you know, enjoy nature. Um, yeah, no, I
0: think that's fantastic.
1: Yeah, and otherwise, if I could, um, I, I said before, I'm an unashamed sports fan, so I would get myself down to the garden, or go up and see Yankees. Um, occasionally, go out into New Jersey, watch uh, Red Bulls. Yeah. So I don't know. I I don't know. I, I, it's, it's, you know, I, I, I I live, I live, I I live probably a pretty mundane, boring New York life.
0: No, I think that's great though. If, if uh, that's something that you enjoy, have you already gotten your son to be a sports fan too? try kind of trying to, without
1: trying not to be a pushy dad for for the sports thing? I mean, again, I was lucky. I, you know, my parents like, um, yeah, so my, my parents weren't particularly uh, sort of pushing on that front saying that my mother played field hockey uh for new zealand oh, so wow. it was yeah it was big uh, college um was very was very successful college sports player
0: so yeah cool. just, so so even though they stuff. didn't push you in that direction they had a lot of uh a lot of good thoughts about it
1: yeah and no, absolutely i just think that i'm again very fortunate that just kind of parents are like yeah pursue the things that you enjoy and try and you know whatever relaxes you and you can have fun with enjoy it and it's just yeah it's just you know sport it's just a bit of escapism i mean i've I've got to say being a brit in america it's a it's a it's a a cliche to say this country is sports mad um (laughs) um, i just uh, american sports just make me they they make me laugh in a bit in the best way that everything is just so much kind of bigger and Mm -hmm. bolder it's just funny it's just it's just funny watching sports here it's just I enjoy. I mean, again, I'm a I'm a huge um, soccer fan. As it's, uh, as I'm sure you know, uh, football, soccer in the UK, it's religion. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. it's just part of the DNA of British culture. Yeah, and um, it's very tribal, and it's just a little. It's just expressed a little differently here, but it's fun. It's fun. I like I like talking about sports because it's just escapism, isn't it? It's 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 like it's like watching something you love or listening to something you love. It's just it's just escapism.
0: Yeah, so. and uh, I. Everybody who knows me knows that I am no sports fan. In fact, of all the major league teams and all the different sports, if I, I probably know less than half of even what sport that team would play if you would rattle off their name. But, um, but the fact is that I appreciate it as entertainment. And uh, when I lived in San Jose, I went to several uh, Sharks games. And mm. Sharks fans are pretty rabid. And, of course, I'm not. But I loved it. It was great. It was a great yeah, show. It's just like going to a theater. I mean, you're seeing a great show. Um, I, used to, I used to love baseball games, um, not because I cared who won, but because it's an, it's an outing. I mean, you go out and you have the food and you sit there and you cheer and you, you watch the people around you and some people are totally into it and the kids are having a good time. And I don't know. So I, I am not a sports fan and yet I, uh, certainly understand, um, how it's, it's good in some ways. So
1: absolutely. And And a life lesson I took many years ago when I
0: was working in music production,
1: you'd be given a full roster of the year's roster of what you had to produce and there were bands that you liked and bands that you didn't like mm-hmm. and on one occasion i was producing a um i was producing a a concert i won't name them but it was a, a very well known american I, I think i can say pop princess i think i can say that mm-hmm. you can you can try and put a pin in who that was but very still very very popular mm-hmm. and i was backstage and the lead sound engineer, who I'd worked with for year for many years, because they'd also come from a news background, was a hardcore um, punk and sort of black metal fan. <laughs> and I I saw I sat next to him. I thought I looked at him. I said, "Are you grimacing? Are you grimacing because this is that bad?" <laughs> and he said, "No, no, no, no. You misunderstand me. I'm actually smiling." I was like, "What's going on with you?" He said. He said, "Look, you know, and this guy was, you know, knuckles to neck, full tattooed, yeah. just 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 so into the music scene that he was into. And he said to me, he said, "No, no, no. I'm actually enjoying this because it's it's reminding me to appreciate that there are people out there in that crowd who are having the time of their lives." Yeah. And learning to appreciate what other people appreciate." has been a big lesson for me. And I apply apply that in audiobooks all the time. That's fantastic. I love that. I'm not going to be picky or snobby about what I work on or what we work on, because it has, everything we make, it has value to someone. And I know that somebody somewhere, that book will inform them, it will entertain them, it will enlighten them in some way for that day and that's a good thing
0: yeah no that's uh, i love hearing that good good for him i was a little surprised one time when my uh my nephew who is a uh he was a big metal fan and uh, he, he taught himself how to play guitar he won some contests and uh, at some point he said something about buying taylor swift's latest album i said mm. taylor swift he said yeah she's great and I yeah. thought, how unusual and and I thought, good for him for appreciating lots of different things so, well, this, uh, it's always good to
1: actually, hear. and this is something, I mean, we could digress for. I could digress for hours and tell you all sorts of, you know, my my thoughts and theories about audiobooks but this is something which is is a curiosity to me, which is that I do wonder in audiobooks if audiobooks might go the way of um, changing tastes in music, now whereas before I think if you looked at looked at consumption data, you'd see that people had more defined tastes in music 10, 20 years ago, and people were fans of particular genres. Mm-hmm. And they, tended to just, they tended to stick to those genres. But there's no doubt, and I, I know people who work in you know, music curation uh, for, you know, I, I won't name the platforms, but you know the platforms I'm talking about mm-hmm. and where people are mainly listening to music. Right. And they'll tell you that eclectic, eclectic tastes, eclecticism, is of the moment it's very clear that people are consuming all sorts of different music and they're clearly trying different types of music and i'm curious about audiobooks and
0: whether hmm. it might be
1: that in time people begin to sample they sort of step out of their preferred genres I don't, I don't know yet i don't know yet it's it's curious i'd be very curious to see the data on that
0: yeah, um, yeah that would be interesting
1: yeah i think i think it could be a potential i think that'd be great i mean it's great because people are getting more things that entertain them and inform them and obviously, it's good for business. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm always you know, fascinated by the data side of the business.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's great. Well, Guy, thank you so much for coming in tonight. Um, where can people find you if they want to look you up online?
1: Um, so, they can find me. So, people can find me at, the best email is to email narrators at macmillan.com. Narrators at macmillan.com. Okay. Um, Macmillan, uh, Macmillan's in the process of actually relaunching its website, so you're welcome to peruse the Macmillan website, but it's soon to be relaunched. Um, yeah, if you're interested in reaching out to us, that email address. Um, I'm going to say something because this is always—I always get asked this at other panels if people eventually get my personal email. I'm happy to hear from people directly. Um, please don't send me newsletters.
0: Okay. Just, I, I just—I really feel I need to say that. <laughs> No, that's really... that's that's good. I'm glad that you did. I know that um, that was a big thing for a while. Uh, and then it was kind of less of a thing and more people were saying, don't do that. And then actually at APAC a couple of years ago, um, there were, I think, two different people on panels that I heard of who said... Well, no, or may, it might have been three years ago, said, no, actually, um, I kind of like those because I feel like I don't have to reply. So it really is highly variable. And I always True. encourage people to um, find out specifically whether or not somebody is interested in getting something like that, because some people are and some people aren't.
1: Absolutely. I mean, for me personally, no. Yeah. Um, I, I also, I try to respond to every narrator that contacts me. Be that somebody who's checking in, who I know, or somebody new, to give them opportunity so they can tell them tell tell me something about themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, I try I try to. I mean, I ask I ask also that people, uh, if they want to update me, keep it to once a quarter or once every six months. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, people often remind me what they what they're doing but trust me, I'm already looking at what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) We know because we track it at Macmillan Audio for all the people that we hire and we're thinking of hire, we're looking at what you're narrating. Mm -hmm. So um, we keep a close eye on it. So it's nice to be reminded, but yeah, no, uh, a a quick hello, uh, something that if directors if want to tell me something that they've been working on, which they thought was particularly important for them, it might be something they're nominated for, or a genre which they tried and they felt they had success. Or you know, I'm sticking to I'm sticking to what I know and I'm good at it. I'm getting you know good traction here. I'm getting regular bookings. I like to hear that. I like mm-hmm. to hear that. But you know, keep it simple, keep it short, and I'll I'll do my absolute best to um, reply to all of them. I do. I you mean, know, I love to talk with the audiobook community. And, um, yeah, just, I, I, I love to, I love to hear what people are, people are up to.
0: No, that's uh, good. That's good. Are you on uh, Twitter, Instagram, any other platforms that, uh, that, that uh, people can find you on?
1: Well, it's interesting. It's funny. I knew you were going to ask me that question. Um, <laughs> I, my social media, I keep private.
0: Ah, uh, okay. All right. And
1: there's a number of reasons for that is that my wife works in communications mm. and so she spends her life on those platforms Mm -hmm. and so i'm like i've already got someone else in my life who lives online Mm -hmm. um i'm gonna stay i'm gonna be on this side of the line yeah no
0: (laughs) totally understand i i blame nobody for keeping social media private um i i don't really post all that much on the platforms that i'm on uh i do follow them (laughs) <laughs> probably spend yeah, far too I, much time on them, but, um, but I, I don't, uh, post all that much and I blame nobody for, um, not, uh, yeah. being public about everything that they do and every sandwich they eat on, oh, uh, of course, online. I think
1: for me, I think for me also, you know, what does online life mean? I mean, I do a lot of books about kind of digital culture and people's experience, the you know, changing society through living online. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm more interested in places like Reddit. It's like i'm still reddit in some respects is old school because mm-hmm. people are having conversations yeah there's loads of stuff on reddit which is you know offensive and i don't want any you know not interested in but there's also a lot of people who are just seeking conversation mm-hmm. and i think the difference between reddit and this is this is this sounds odd traditional social media is that they're not conversations on traditional social media mm-hmm. that's just a kind of shouting system mm-hmm. whereas reddit Is a conversation, and I think that's much more kind of interesting place. There's some very interesting threads on Reddit about audiobooks, and I think it's been for me, it's been a real place of discovery of people's interests and comments and thoughts about the craft. Also, thinking about um, genres, sometimes comment on narrators, um, comments on writers. Um, Hmm. Yeah, for me, it's for me, it's fundamentally more interesting, a more interesting space. I mean, we like every media producing organization our marketing is constantly speaking to and using social media platforms but on a on a professional level if one could describe linkedin as a social as a place of social media it kind of is it's this kind of sort of crossover place Mm -hmm. i found that place more useful Mm -hmm. for a place where people want to connect with me um because fundamentally it has the it's for professionals Mm -hmm. it's it's a it's a place of work yeah um and anyway nobody wants to look at all of my boring pictures of me and my son <laughs> running around the park there you go
0: so there you go anyway fair, enough, fair <laughs> enough all right well guy this is great thank you so much for coming in I, I hope the pbr was good after a long week of work oh it is rich it is <laughs> nice. I, really, I really needed it <laughs> i'm glad did, did you end up getting the uh getting the scotch chaser
1: no i'm not gonna, yet like, huh no I, I i i'll go searching for a, a single malt later I think sounds good um, sounds yeah. sounds
0: totally fair um I I will tell you that uh Henry what, what is this again Henry uh Hen, Henry Hotspur's hard pressed for cider was was a pretty good cider in my view
1: good good I'm yeah. glad I'm, I'm glad there's another an, an, another cider drinker in the world you know, yeah no, my I, own
0: heart I think they're great like I said I, I like um pear you know what I used to get frequently uh when we'd go out to a bar um uh, my wife and I would go to a a pub in mm-hmm. uh, San Jose And I would order a snake bite, which um, I've always thought that a snake bite is a great drink. And so I would order a snake bite and a black and tan, and they would always come over and give the black and tan to me and the snake bite to my wife. And I'd say, nope, it's the other way around. (laughs) That
1: is so funny. It's so funny. I I hope, I mean, I'm wondering now if your listeners might be quickly Googling what snake bite is. I don't know how (laughs) commonplace snake bite is, but snake bite is interesting. Snake bite in the UK was... Banned. It was illegal. No kidding. Um, you couldn't serve it. If you got caught serving it, well, as a student, I worked in a lot of student bars and um nightclubs. It was, you know, it was the best work. You know, you got to go out all the time basically.
0: And, sure, yeah. You know, on the
1: on the on the on the alcohol side of the bar was so always. Why would good that run. be banned? So, um, but now if you were asked for it, no no no, I was remember being warned, like you can't serve it. You can't serve it. And also Snake Bite in the UK. That is a, what we would call a Metler's drink. That is for that is for old school kind of Aussie Osborne
0: types. <laughs> so, that's that know. maybe maybe it means something different there. What is a snake bite? A snake bite for us is half lager, half cider. Yeah, that's illegal. That's bizarre. Because <laughs> it, it was considered to
1: be poisonous. Now I don't think it's poisonous. It will give you a kick because cider's strong and there's a lot of sugar in there um
0: yeah that's but, why it's good
1: <laughs> well exactly or you had a snake bite black so you stuck a you stuck a shot of um what do you what do you what, what would you call it here we call it cordial it's a funny name um kind of like like berry concentrate also i don't know what you call oh, it oh sure exactly.
0: probably something like chambord or yeah um, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't like necessarily that. be alcoholic it wouldn't necessarily be
1: alcohol it would just sort of give it like make it even sweeter
0: wow um
1: no, Snakebite was, I mean, it was a, a, a thing of my youth. I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't into guitar music as a, as a kid, I was always into like, as a, as a teenager, I was always into electronic music. Hmm. So, you know, it was, I don't know, it was always like the, like the lads at my school who were like into metal were always trying to get hold of Snakebite or make Snakebite in a plastic bottle and sort of drink it out on the sports pit i mean it's just that ridiculous is just,
0: that is so bizarre to me it's like a it's it's just a sweet beer i mean it's just
1: yeah exactly. That's bizarre. exactly and it will look it's good for listening if you're, you're drinking it if you listen to music it gets you fired up <laughs> so.
0: no doubt no doubt well well i hope that the scotch later is is good and I'm, I'm glad the pbr was good uh in the meantime so guy thanks so much for coming in i really appreciate your time
1: thank you rich it's been a pleasure thank you <clears throat>
0: that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Guy Oldfield for coming in for a drink. I really enjoyed hearing about his path to audiobooks through journalism and live music, and I hope you did too. Don't forget to check out the sponsor for tonight's episode, Squeaky Cheese Productions. They're on the cutting wedge, they're on the web at squeakycheeseproductions.com, and I'm very grateful for their support of the Audiobook Speakeasy. As always, you can find the Audiobook Speakeasy on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, and all the usual apps. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook Speakeasy. If you're enjoying our Speakeasy chats, please take a few minutes to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. Quick shout-out tonight to Stevie Sue, a budding romance narrator who left a very kind five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Glad you're enjoying the show, Stevie Sue, and best of luck in the romance world. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you'd add a buck or two to the tip jar. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me slash audiobookspeakeasy. Many thanks to the show's latest patron over on Patreon, Shaman Casey, who signed up at the wine level recently. I really appreciate the support, Shaman. Thanks for helping me keep the lights on here in the Speakeasy. Until we see you here in the Speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! (laughs) ¶¶